Jesus, there's no one like you. Jesus, we love you, ever adore you. There's no one like you. Jesus, we love you, ever adore you. no sinner beyond the infinite stretch of your mercy how can we thank you enough for how you have loved us completely Jesus there's no one like you Jesus we love you ever adore you there's no one like you, Jesus, we love you, ever adore you, Lord. All we have, all we need, all we want is you. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Thank you, Lord. You may be seated. Or before you do that, though, say good evening to a neighbor. Well, we've come as far here in chapter uh, 13 of 2 Kings, verse 10. Uh, last, we finished off last week, we were introduced to another Joash. And I say that because if you remember, um, we have two Joashes on the scene now, the north and south, because it wasn't tough enough to just keep all the kings and, you know, keep sense of all this. Um, the Lord's really keeping us on our toes and making sure we, you know, Joash, which Joash, right? Israel, Judah. So, um, you know, I really want to encourage you. Uh, I'm, I'm blessed by you all because I know some of you are taking diligent notes on these things and, you know, asterisks and trying to remember which Joash we're talking about. But, um, yeah, we're going to be reading about uh, Joash and his reign in Israel. Right now, it's going to take pl a place about 798 B.C. I just want you to think about that before we begin line by line and verse by verse. As we're going to read, they're continuing to do the things that they've done, right? They continue the moniker of probably all of you've got it memorized. You know, he followed in his father, you know, Jeroboam, you know, the son of Nebat, you know, the calf worship. And, and that's because more is caught than taught, right? And so they continue to, to practice this idolatry and sin. But as I'm studying this, knowing, and, and like many of you have read the Bible cover to cover and, and, and gone through it line by line, um, I know that in such a short period of time, the northern tribe of Israel is going to be carried into captivity in Assyria. And as a matter of fact, in these next few chapters we're in, the plan is already going to start to be put forth by God. There's judgment that's coming because of the wickedness and the idolatry. And yet they're so consumed with their daily lives and the way that they were living that they're not paying attention to the signs to the things that God is showing them that this judgment is going to come. And, and all he wants them to do is, and providing ample time is for them to repent and, and turn away from their wickedness. Um, and so, you know, like I said, we're, we're at about 798 BC, 721 is when the Assyrian invasion happens. Now, it'll start a little sooner than that because there's three phases to it, and I'll, I'll, I'll break that out as we go through these passages. It didn't just start in 721. It starts many years before that, 10 plus 15 years or more before that. God already starts that three different aspects of the Assyrian invasion that will occur that God, each time, giving a chance for repentance. So I, I just pray, may, may we be sober-minded 
I, I know many of us have been Christians for a number of years, and we can become very, um, I, I won't speak for you, I can be, I think complacent, comfortable. Um, yeah, I know you're coming, Jesus, but, you know, that's maybe 50, 100 years from now. What if it's tonight? They, they you know, Jesus says, I'm coming soon, right? He says, I'm coming again. He's going to rapture us, and and judgment's going to be poured out. And and just like these people here, they they went, you know, they were a nation, God's chosen people. They identified with God. They just weren't following him. And I think that's just a really good um, sober message for us as we, as, as, as a church, as the bride of Christ, that we make sure in these times that we truly have our eyes focused on what Christ is doing and just how close we really are. We really, like no other time in history, we are so close I mean, the birth pains, the things we're seeing that, you know, you've heard those passages when we cover them. It wasn't one at a, we could see one, okay. Now it's the frequency and the, that was what the Lord said. These things would happen, these needs be. And so let us take from this tonight. Let us see these examples of how God works, how God is so long suffering and desires repentance and desires that, that nations will humble themselves Repent and turn from their wicked ways and follow the one true God. That's, that's all he desires from our hearts. He loves us. Father, we come here as we open your word. Lord, we ask, examine our hearts tonight. We pray, please, Lord. We pray, God, that we would, we would have these eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I, I imagine Joash and the nation, Lord, they were... They were out of step with you. They were out of touch with what you were doing. Yet you, you prophesied these things. You told them. Oh Lord, forgive us for the things we've done. I've done in this, this country, Lord. God, you're so lovely and so long-suffering. Forgive us our sin. Lord, we desire to follow after you. Let us, let us see these truths tonight in a, in a closer and more real way than we've ever seen them before, Lord. Jesus, we believe. We know you're a promise keeper and you're coming again. And Lord, we're ready. We want to be ready, God. We want to be a church that's ready. Oil's in our, oil in our lamps, not asleep, but ready, Jesus. So I pray, God, Go before us here this evening. Anoint your word. And we pray and ask this in your holy and mighty name, Jesus Christ. And all God's children pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 13, 2 Kings, verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, remember there's a southern king already there. Now we're introduced to this northern king, right? Um, because Joahaz had a son, Joash, who's now reigning in his place. That's what we're being introduced here. The son of Joash became king over Israel. That's in the north now we're talking about. In Samaria, that's the capital at that time in the north. And he reigned 16 years. If you're keeping track, he's now the 12th king since the time of Solomon. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
who made Israel sin, but walked in them. Again, this should be a moniker at this point. We keep reading this. Probably most of you at this point have it memorized, right? Um, They continue to practice this idolatry. They continue to walk apart from God. Now, the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers, and then Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam II, by the way, sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now, before we go too much further here, there's a backstory that we're going to be going into in verse 14. If you read this, it's not chronologically focused. What's going to happen is, um, I'm sure you've seen it in a movie, you're watching something that's presently going on chronologically, the screen kind of blurs for a second, and then you get a backstory or a backdrop, and the Lord brings you into the backdrop. That's exactly what we're going to read in verses 14. We're going to go backwards actually here um, to when Joash was still reigning, the things that were going on, um, and and we're going to get additional information. Not to mention, I'm going to have us turn here because he says, now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did. Now, certainly we don't have that that book that he's describing, but we do have another book in our Bibles, uh, Chronicles. It's, It's a similar name. It's not the same book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel right? Obviously, God didn't want us to have that. We don't have that book, uh, but we do have this book. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 25. Second Chronicles, that's to your right, two books there. Second Chronicles chapter 25, and I'd like you to look at verse 17. And I, I want you to see the backdrop here, right? Because we're going to be getting introduced to Amahiza, or Amiza, right? And he's a king of Judah, and we're going to read about him. First, we're going to, like I said, he's going to take us through a backdrop, but I first want us to see this as we're following along chronologically. So that again is 2 Chronicles chapter 25, and that's verse 17. And we're going to see exactly what was going on because we're going to be reading about it. And there's some details left out in 2 Kings that 2 Chronicles are going to fill in for us. So it's important we sort of look there and get the the whole comprehensive account of what was happening. Verse 17. Now, Amahizah, or Amahizah, king of Judah, asked advice and sent to Joash, the son of Joaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, come, let us face one another in battle. Now, we haven't read this yet in 2 Kings. We're just about to get to that, okay? We're going we're gonna to go here in a minute. But I'm giving you, I'm giving you some additional information that, that the Lord has given us. What happens at this time is... As we're going to read, and if you looked at chapter 25 uh, and, and you've studied Second Chronicles before, you know that God had blessed Amahizah and he had gone up against Edom. And he had turned around and he had defeated many of the Edomites. I mean, 10,000. I mean, a large quantity of them. And then in chapter 25, verse right around 15, well, 14 like that, He basically turns around and takes the gods, the lowercase pagan, you know, gods. He takes the gods and he begins to bring them back to the nation of Israel, the Edomite gods, and he starts to worship them. So this arouses God's anger uh, quite a bit here because he's committing idolatry after God just gave him such favor over these, you know, the Edomites and the nations like that. 
and, and gave him victory. You can look back at um, verse 14. Now it was so after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, set them up to be his gods and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. Verse 15, therefore the anger of the Lord was aroused against Amaziah. See, we won't see all of that in 2 Kings. We don't, we don't understand the reason or the rationale until we read 2 Chronicles. We understand exactly what's starting to go on here. Now you can go to verse 17 as I was just reading. It says, now, because what's happening? Amaziah, he's feeling pretty good, isn't he? He just had tons of success and victory with the Edomites. So what does he do? He looks to his you know, the, the brother in the north, if I can say it that way. And he says, you know what? Kind of pounding his chest full of pride. I'll take you on too. And that's what he's going to do. So the south is basically going to have a civil war against the north. And Amahiza is doing this because he just wiped out all those Edomites. Certainly he could take the north and it's, you know, it, or yeah, the north and it's going to be, it's going to be an easy slaughter for him. Well, there's a couple things he's not counting on. One, most importantly, the Lord. And number two, he forgets that, oh, by the way, as we've been reading in 2 Kings, the north tribe in the north kingdoms, they weren't just sitting around. Who were they fighting against? Do you remember? Well, it was Ben-Hadad at one point, Syria, right? And then, who, you remember, you know, there was all the assassination, and then the other guy takes over there, and, you know, there's this battle ensuing in Syria and the whole thing's going on. These guys are fighting the Syrians. These guys are battle tough and battle ready. They just, you know, you talk about 10,000s. They're fighting hundreds of thousands. But he's so full of pride. Isn't that, sometimes it's so interesting to me when we have those great moments of victory, how we can find that that is the time that we actually end up being the most full of ourselves and full of pride. And it leads us into the most uh, unfortunate decisions and uh, direction rather than when we're going through the deepest and most difficult trials and tribulations, we, we hold on so tight to the Lord. Lord, I don't want to take a step to the left or to the right, you know, we, and we're, every word of God, and we're just right there because of the heaviness of the trial. But when things are going really, really well, a lot of times we let our guards down. We, we, we get confident or comfortable and we're not in our word like we should be. Well, that's, that's what in essence has happened here. So he's come, let us face one another. And Joash, king of Israel, sent to Amahizah, king of Judah, saying, the thistle, that's an herb, right? It's, it's, it's kind of like an herb or plant. Some like to call it a weed. Uh, this is what he's describing it as. He's saying, you weed. That's what he's calling him. That was in Lebanon sent to give the cedar. He's describing himself, this big, mighty tree in the north. You thistle in the south, Judah. You're coming, you know, this little weeds coming up against this big, mighty cedar tree in the north. I think he's, you know, he's making his point. That was in Lebanon saying, give your daughter to my son as a wife. Oh, now we're given another detail here. So we see that, again, an unequally yoked marriage. What is, the, what is uh, you know, doing in the South, trying to you know, marry uh, in the North like that when they're not following the Lord? They're committing idolatry. The kings in the South at this point, for the most part, have been following the Lord. But we find this turn in Amahizah's life, right? And 
what this also communicates to us is that he thought himself an equal par with Joash from the north. That's what it's telling us here. He says, give your daughter to my son as a wife. And wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. He makes his point very clear there that we would trample you in the south, Judah. Indeed, you say that you have defeated the Edomites and your heart is lifted up to boast. <laughs> I like this. Stay home now. Why should you meddle with trouble that you should fall? You and Judah with you. Look, just stay home. Maybe go, you know, put out a, pull out a good book. You and your wife have a nice dinner. You know, Emma, Isaac, what are you doing? You don't want to do this. It, it's actually pretty good wisdom from Joash. In, in that regard, verse 20, but Amahiza would not heed for it came from God. This is why I also brought us here. We start to understand what this is coming from. Why did it come from God? Do you remember back in verse 14? Because of idolatry. That he might give them into the hand of their enemies because they sought the gods of Edom. So Joash, king of Israel, went out, and he and Amiza, king Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah, and Judah was defeated by Israel. And every man fled to his tent. Then Joash, the king of Israel, captured Amahizah, king of Judah, basically brings him into captivity. Then the son of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, at Beth Shemesh, and he brought him to Jerusalem, broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits, that's roughly um, 200 yards or 600 feet. That's a pretty big hole in your gate, right? That just leaves you incredibly vulnerable. And he took all the gold and silver and all the articles that were found in the house of God because he had to fund the war. He had to pay for this war. So, you know, to the, to the victor goes the spoils, so to speak. So uh, with Obed-Edom and the treasuries of the king's house and the hostages, and they returned to Samaria. Now, you could turn back to where we were. So I want us to see, because we're going to read here, this, we're going to go back and we're going to kind of go back a little bit, but we're going to be reading about Amahiza, how he was faithful in these beginning years. Um, and then we're going to see how it ends. And that's why I wanted us to go to 2 Chronicles. Well, let's, let's pick back up in verse 14. And we're going to be reading about basically the passing and the death of Elisha. But the focus is still on Joash in the north. And then it's going to switch to Amahiza, which we just read about in the south. So Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. So this is the man that did more miracles than anyone else in our Bible besides Jesus Christ and Moses. And yet he even recognizes that there's a time and that he is even unable and nor is he called to necessarily to heal himself. He healed all these others. And I mean, we saw great and amazing miracles that God did, but it's got to be in the will of the Lord. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him. I, I think this is amazing. And he wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. What, he, what he's saying, even this wicked man, Joash, in the north here, he comes to him and he's saying, You're even greater than all our armies. Elisha, it was you. It was your prayer. It was your intercession with the Lord. It wasn't our armies that brought us all this victory against Syria. And Ben-Hadad and Hazael and all of them, this man, it was, it was, you're a mouthpiece of God. And he, he's truly mourning. He's truly remorseful that this great prophet, 
is going gonna, is gonna to be going to be with the Lord. And so his heart is breaking. Even, even though he's evil, he, he's this wicked man. He, he has this moment where he's acknowledging what Elisha has meant to the nation of Israel. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and some arrows. I imagine here he's on his deathbed that way. And, you know, uh, Joash is, what? What do you... You know, he's hugging him. He's holding him. I'm going to, you know, you're greater than any of our chariots and our armies. And, and Elisha's like, yeah, uh-huh. grab a bow and grab some arrows. I mean, I find that a little, you know, he just doesn't miss a beat, Elisha. This is very, very important what he's going to say. Take a bow and some arrows. So he took some, he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. He's, he's about to prophesy here. So he put his hand on it, and Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. This is going to be his last act, Elisha's going to do. And he said, open the east window. That's pointing towards Syria. If you know where the east is and out that window, it would be looking towards Syria, okay? And if you shoot an arrow in that direction, basically it's more or less paramount to declaring war because you're shooting in that direction saying, I'm going to attack, right? So he opens this window. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians of Aphek till you have destroyed them. That's a command from the Lord through this mouthpiece of Elijah, a prophet of God. He says, when you shoot, you understand. He says, that's, that's what you're to do. You keep shooting until they're destroyed. Then he said, take the arrows, plural. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he, strikes, so he struck three times and stopped. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? He took the arrows, plural. And what did God command him? And this is an action sermon. So he takes the bow and, you know, he points down to the ground. He's shooting the arrows to the ground. What should he have done? He should have emptied his quiver. And shot every single arrow to the ground. God had commanded. Because at this point, Joash is understanding what he's talking about. Because clearly he opened it up to Syria. And he said, you're to destroy Syria. That's what he's already told him. And then he says, now I want you to strike the ground. So he's, he's giving him the action. How many times is it going to take? He shoots three. And Joash just figures it's a good time to stop. But was he commanded to stop? No. He was commanded to shoot until what? Until they're destroyed. We call that disobedience. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him, Elisha. And he said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike them or strike Syria only three times. What is he saying here? He says, you're going to start, but you're not going to complete the work I have for you. Where was his focus? Where was his determination? Where was, where was his obedience to what God had called him to? He was reasoning in his own abilities, in what he thought in that moment. He's giving him a lesson here. This is the last lesson that Elisha will give on earth. Well, maybe. Let's continue reading. Then Elisha died, and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. 
So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders. So they're, they're in the middle of this funeral, right? They're carrying a man out as they would have out of the gates to a burial plot, and they're going to get ready to put this man in the ground. They spot a set of raiders that are looming and coming close, and so obviously that's a, that's a point of danger, and, and they're, you know, from Moab. So as they're burying this man, then suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha because they're in a hurry. There's just an, they see the tomb. Elisha had just died. It's still open. You know, this will do. And they just literally drop him in there. What happens next, they don't expect. Maybe this is actually truly the last thing that Elisha did, although we would obviously credit the Lord for this. So they put, the, they put the man in the tomb of Elisha, and when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now, I have to ask you a question. Is there something supernatural about the bones of Elisha? No. What is God communicating here to you and I tonight and to all those that were there to witness this? And it's something so powerful and profound. I talked about it on Sunday. I sort of even referenced that we would be in this passage. I love how the Lord knits that together. It's God communicating that Elisha's life and his ministry, right, as we read here, it continues even after his death. And that's exactly what happens for you and I. A life well lived, a life lived for the Lord develops a legacy, a testimony, and it continues even after we cease to exist here. How so? Whenever we invest a seed from the gospel of Jesus Christ, it produces fruit. The word of God never returns void. And that outlives you and I, generation after generation. You want a proof of that? Look around this room. You're here and so am I. Somebody told somebody else about the good news. And that person told somebody else about the good news. And eventually, somebody told you and I about the good news. You just start to think about that. We have Bibles in our hands. Go back to the 1500s and 1400s, and you start to study church history, and you start to understand why this book that's anointed, divine, God-breathed, became so powerful. Be students of history. It's because men were willing to die, and women, so that you and I could have the Bible, the Word of God, in our very hands tonight. Their blood ran red. Thousands died. So that we could know the truth and the love of Jesus Christ. And it continues to live on. In your Bible, there's a book called Acts. This church, built on a Acts 2.42 model, the word of God coming together, breaking bread, fellowship, prayer. We're just version, I don't know, I used to say seven, I don't know, maybe we're version 253, whatever. Yeah, the point is it lives on because Christ lives in us. And the work that we do and the investment we make in the kingdom whether that's our finances, whether that's our time, whether that's our love and our hearts and the Bible and the, the ministries we serve in 
in our jobs, in our homes, with our grandbabies, the whole nine yards. You, you pack it all in. That is a, a pedigree. When somebody asks you, what's your pedigree as a Christian? You, you should say, how much time do you have? Turn with me to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, right? Bara, God created. Elohim, you know, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And you begin to tell them because that's your legacy. That's your pedigree. That's my pedigree. That's powerful. That's what this teaches me. That a life well lived for Christ, it continues. And it continues to pay dividends to the next generation and the generation thereafter. And that's my heart. And I know the staff and the pastors here and the elders. Our heart for the school here. We're investing in these little ones. Because if the Lord should tarry another 25, 50 years, if that long. They're coming up, these next disciples, these apologists. They're going to go out into the world for Jesus Christ. And they're going to plant seeds. Some are going to water. But God to be the increase. That's what we do. That's what's been done for 2,000 years. That's what's been done for 6,000 years. And just take that in for a minute. It's bigger than you and I in this room, in this building, in this city. It is so much bigger than us to even comprehend all that God is doing all the time. And that when a spirit goes to be with him, there's work that's still being done in this city. Isn't that powerful? Well, let's continue here. I mean, we could, we could get pieced out all night on that. I mean, we could I'd close the Bible right now and just sit down and be pieced out the rest of the night on just that alone, right? But God's got more for us. Look at verse 22. And Haziel, all right, uh, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them. Please underline that in your Bibles. When, when people talk about, well, the God of the Old Testament, he was a ruthless, really? No, my God was a gracious God, a compassionate God, even in spite of the idolatry. According to the law, the law said that if you practiced idolatry, you, it was a capital crime. It's a death sentence. And yet God is so gracious and compassionate on them. And he regarded them because, why? Because God's a promise keeper. That's why. Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would not destroy them nor cast them from his presence. Because of the Abrahamic covenant. We've been given a lot of promises, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Over 1,300 of them. In your New Testament alone, you have close to about 700 of them. Again, almost 30% of your Bible is prophecy and God's a promise keeper. Now, how's he how king of Syria died? Then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. Remember, we're, we're back chronologically. We're, we're back here while Joash is still alive, right? So just track with me here. So now the Haziel, king of Syria, died. Then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, recaptured the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoaz, his father, by war. Here's the interesting part. Remember the three arrows? Circle three again. 
Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. But what? But not complete. He never completely destroyed them. It's interesting, in 64 years from this very point, the north will be taken into captivity. Their time is almost up, and they don't even know it. They have no clue. 64 short years. Less than a traditional lifespan today. In the second year, now, we're still in that chronological backspin, right? We're still, we're still not going forward yet. That, that won't pick up until really a little bit later. We're still kind of going back and getting the, back, the backdrop. In the second year of Joash, the son of Joash, king of Israel, Amahizah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king, right? This is at the same time, by the way, that the prophet Jonah from the north... Is, is the prophet to the north, in other words, to Israel, is going to res- arrive on the scene at this very time. So just think about in your Bibles, when we start talking about the prophets, I'm going to be bringing in the prophets to correlate to the time of the kings so that you're correlating these chronologically, how these prophets are coming in and what mouthpiece to the north or to the south, what they're trying to accomplish. Because God's still speaking to his people, calling them to repentance, always sending and having a remnant so that there's light against the darkness. Always God's faithful to do that. So here we see Amahai, the son of king of Judah, right? Became Joash, king of Judah, became king. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name is Jodan of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet, comma, however, not like his father, David. He, it wasn't complete. Why? Because he was engaged in worship to the Lord, but he didn't demand that all of the forms of, of pagan worship, whether it's the high places or the religion, you know, was, was taken down here. We also just read, as I took us to Second Chronicles, what else does he do? He eventually engages in what? Pagan worship with the, with the Edomite pagan gods. So it's interesting. I find it interesting. He says, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He begins well. He begins very well. But then what does he do? He begins to compromise. He becomes more focused on everyone else's sin rather than his own. Right? He's willing to make excuses and ignore his religious deeds, if I could say it that way, uh, you know, pagan worship, worshiping the Edomites, God, all of those things. But he's going to go and attack, as we read earlier, Joash, Second Chronicles, from the north to try to destroy him because he's a wicked king. Meanwhile, after his conquest with the Edomites, he's worshiping their gods. Do you, do you, do you see what's really happening here? Do you see the compromise and how it sets in? To me... This points out something very important. Verse 4. However. There's always a however. There's always a choice in our lives. I was sharing with a brother earlier today. I was talking with him. I said a lot of times there's testimonies of our lives written. On a page. Like it's written here. For Amaziah. Right? On this page. Amaziah's testimony is written. And there's a comma. There's a delimiter. And then what comes after that? 
is our choice. Does there need to be a however? Or could it have just simply read, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord? It could, it could have just been written like that, couldn't it have? But, however, what do we want after our delimiter, our comma? You see, we get to choose. We get to choose what's written in that book God has. Not only the Lamb's book of life, but all of the deeds, the things we've done. The, 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 we get to choose what's after that comma. And God is simply going to record the testimony. But it's our choice, just as it was Amaziah's. So he did everything in his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And it's just, um, I just think it points to the exaltation he has, the, the thought, the pride of himself. What he thought of himself was pretty good. He had a very high um, or a very strong thought of you know, his pride was, it's amazing he could fit through a door, right? I think we could, we could just simplify it that way. Uh, look, hold your finger. Look at Psalm 139, verse 23, please. You know, Psalm 139, verse 23. I prayed this earlier as we were praying together. Um, examine our hearts, but, but do we often pray this? I, I wonder if Amaziah would have prayed this to the Lord. Maybe there wouldn't have been a comma, however. He followed in the footsteps of his father Joash and did not take down the high places and continued and allowed idolatry in the nation of Israel. Because if you look at verse 23, it says, search me, O God, right? This, this beautiful Psalm of David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, my worries, my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me into the way of everlasting. How often do we actually ask the Lord to do that very thing for us. Search me, O oh God. Search me, Jesus. Search me, O oh Lord. Show me my heart. Show me the things I don't want to see, but need to see. He's faithful to do that. He's so faithful. I wonder if Amahiza had done that. However, the high places were not taken away. Now it happened as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand that he executed his servants who had murdered his father the king, but the children of the murderers he did not execute according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. So, um, you know, we give him a little credit here because he at least, you know, followed Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, or Ezekiel chapter 18, 4, which says the sins of the parents, the sins of the, you know, don't... Um, the, the, the sins of the parents don't affect the, the children. Each person is judged based on their deeds, their choices, their heart. There is no such thing as a generational curse. 
There's no such thing that because somebody in your family did something horrible that you now are paying for the sins that they've done. There, there's, that's not biblical. Ezekiel 18.4 makes that very clear, and so does Deuteronomy chapter 24.16. So that also tells me something, that he knew the law. He also just knew how to apply certain parts of the law to his life. He sort of picked and choosed what fruit he wanted to eat that day. Now it happened, again, he, or sorry, let me go back to the book of the law of Moses, in which the Lord commanded, saying, Fathers shall not put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin. He killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, that's sort of south of the Dead Sea, and he took Selah by war and called its name Jokfiel. Now, uh, to this day, now at the time that this was obviously uh, written, inspired that way, that, that's really interesting. That's in the Jordan today. We, we would know as modern-day Jordan. And it's actually the city that all of you have probably heard of. If you've studied the book of Revelation or, or even Daniel, it's the city of Petra. One day, as it says that they'll flee, Jesus Christ, you know, had commanded even in the Gospels, he says, you'll flee. Pray, pray it's not in the middle of winter. And that not in the middle of, of, of nursing, a, ch- a mother nursing. And flee to what? To the city of Rock, to, the, to Petra. It's in the Jordan. And if you actually know uh, Middle East, not that you follow Middle East real estate probably, but Petra has already begun many years ago, probably 10, 15 years ago. They started selling um, flats or areas that you could buy because they knew, Jews were buying them. Jews are buying them because they know, they know that while they won't acknowledge the New Testament or the promises or the prophecy of Jesus Christ, many upon many of them, while not acknowledging that, have decided to buy flats as a second home in Petra should they need to evacuate. They have a place, and it just so happens to line up with the very prophetic place that God said, flee to Petra because, you, you know, you'll be safe there, right? I find that interesting. I'm sorry, a little tongue-in-cheek. I'm calling it out like it is. They know. They know. Then Amaziah, excuse me, sent messengers to Joash, the son of Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel. Come, let us face one another in battle. This is what we just read in Second Chronicles, but now we're getting a less detailed version of that here, if I can say it that way. And Joash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, or Amiza, I'll say that a hundred different ways. King of Judah saying, the thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon saying, give your daughter to my son as a wife. And wild beasts that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. You have indeed defeated Edom and your heart is lifted up in pride. Glory in that and stay home for why should you meddle with the trouble so that you fall? You and Judah with you. Don't play with the big boys. Verse 11, but Amahizah would not heed. And again, we read that in Second Chronicles 25, 20. Why? We know because of Second Chronicles 25, 20, that it was because God was going to bring judgment and he was actually allowing Amahizah's pride or Amahizah's pride to stir him to go against Joash. We know that God's actually behind this and allowing this because of judgment, because of his, his idolatry and worship of the Edomite uh, lowercase g gods, right? 
Therefore, Joash, king of Israel, went out, and so he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel. And every man fled to his tent. Why, was they, why were they defeated again? For judgment, because of their wickedness and idolatry. That's why it took us to Second Chronicles. Then Joash, king of Israel, captured Amahizah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Azahiah at Beth Shemesh. And he went into Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. Again, 200 yards or 600 feet. And he took all the gold and all the articles silvers that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. Now, the rest of the acts of Joash, which he did, he, his might and how he fought with Amahizah, I'm going to say it again a hundred different ways. King of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the King of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, you know, proper, proper burial with the kings of Israel. Then Jeroboam the second, now we're picking back up. Okay, now we're going back to pick back up where we finished off before when we were in um, chapter 13 and we had gotten to verse 13. Now we're picking back up in the account with the proper chronology following again. Up to this point, this was all backstory that had occurred um, while Joash was still alive, okay? So now, you guys with me? You're, you're getting it? You're tracking? Okay, good. So then Jeroboam, the son of, uh, his son reigned in his place. So now we're back to that. Amahizah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash, again from the north, Joash, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And, and that's just the idea here that um, we see God's just long suffering to this, um, to allow him to have time um, to repent from his worship of, uh, you know, the, the Edomite gods and what have you. Um, he lives actually 15 years after the death of Joash. At this point, we also learn because he lived after the death of Joash, when Joash dies, he, remember, he was taken into captivity by Joash because he had lost that battle, the north versus the south. So Joash in the north is dying, is, is dead at this point. So naturally, Amahiza gets released back to go to the south, and he now takes the king, and he sort of is a co-heir with his son, a co-regency, a co if I could say it that way. He's now uh, going to reign with his son at this point, Amahiza, for these last 15 years, God giving him a chance to repent. Now, what prophets arise on this scene? We start seeing two more minor prophets, and certainly right around the same time, a major prophet as we describe it. Two minor prophets are the book of Amos, or Amos the prophet, and also Hosea. Hosea, right? Those specifically were prophets to the north. Warning of the judgment that's going to come to the north of Israel. By the way, the time clock's kicking. Now we're down to some 50 years at this point. Okay, before they're about to be taken into captivity. Um, also, right around verse 21, when we're going to read about Azariah, who's also Uzziah, we'll get there in a moment. Isaiah, the prophet, comes on the scene, and he's speaking as a mouthpiece to the southern kingdom, which is Judah. He's speaking to the south at this point. So you have basically three prophets that God is his mouthpiece, because time is... It's, they're getting very close, and so he's speaking more and more. Repent, turn from your ways. When we get to the, the books of Isaiah, when we read Amos and Hosea, you'll remember 
this passage is of what was going on chronologically, historically, and you'll know why God sent them as prophets to be the mouthpiece to the north and to the south that way. See, that, that's what I love. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to take a moment. This is what I love about the Word of God. As we go through these historical books and these accounts, Second Kings, Kings mostly focusing Again, uh, compared to Chronicles, you know, Chronicles is more focused on the priestly perspective and account. Kings is mostly focused on the prophet's perspective and account, right? That's how they separate. And then weaved into this, you have the prophets that God is using at the time of the wickedness of these kings in the north and the south. What I love about this is the pearls are strung. And now it's all coming together. As we sit under this, this teaching, the word, if for us in the next six months to a year, as we make our ways through, man, it's all going to connect. The dots are going to start connecting for all of us. It's, whoa, now I understand. Now I see the historical. I see the prophetic. I begin to understand all of these pieces coming together. And, and that's why I'm, I'm sort of pausing to talk about this as we go through it. Because I know some, this, for some, this may be the first time you've gone line by line and, and verse by verse through the scripture. So I want you to understand is the foundation of everything that's being pulled together here for you by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He, he's doing this for us. So he, he's turning around. He's living 15 years after the death. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Again, not our Chronicles, but a book of Chronicles, right? And they formed the conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they went after him at Lachish and killed him there, right? He had powerful enemies. We don't, we're not told why. Then they brought him on a horse, and, they, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. We see a royal burial here. And all the people of Judah took Azariah. Now, you may have heard of Azariah. I'm sure you're more comfortable, as I said earlier, with the name that's also given to him in, in 2 Chronicles 26 and elsewhere, Uzziah. Uzziah. And the amazing things that have Uzziah done. This is the same man. Azariah is Uzziah. It's just a, it's a, you know, Matthew Matt. Um, um, you know, James Jim. It's just a different way of, of, of the name, but it's the same idea. It's the same name. And he was 16 years old and made, king, made him king instead of his father, Amaziah, right? So he built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. Now we're going to be going back to the north here, 50 years again, as I said, to their captivity, roughly about 782 BC. Um, we're now going to our 13th king, as you're following along. In verse 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, um, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and he made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel. So what is he doing? He's enlarging the boundaries of Israel back to the time of David and Solomon. Back to the time of David and Solomon. That's exactly what he's being, do, being led to do by the Lord. He's not listening. He's still doing, obviously, the calf worship in the north in Samaria. They're still practicing their religious ways. He's not honoring. He's compromising. 
but out of God's just sure grace and promises, out of his love for his children, his people, God is enlarging their borders back to what they used to be at the time of David and Solomon, okay? Which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Ameti, the prophet that was in Gath-hefer. Wait a minute, Jonah? Yeah, that's the prophet Jonah that you read about that goes to Nineveh. Just, just most people are unaware. Jonah also had a prophecy, and I think this is striking, and I'm going to read this, and then we'll come back and talk about it here. But he had spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amenti, the prophet that was in Gathifa. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, that there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So look, he's enlarging the borders, God's grace. Why is he doing that? Why is he showing that? He's praying, you know, God is turning around and giving them the opportunity, the northern tribes, to do what? To repent, to get reconciled, to get right with God. He's enlarging the borders. He's getting their attention, God's blessing. And maybe they would humble themselves and turn to God, right? Do they? No, because in 41 years, they're going to go into captivity from here. But I find it interesting. I told you I'd pause a moment. I'd ask you to circle Jonah. If I didn't, please circle the name Jonah right now, the prophet. Why are we going back to Jonah? Who was Jonah sent to? Nineveh. Who are, who's Nineveh? Nineveh is the capital that will eventually be what? Assyria, right? And what does he do? He goes to the Assyrians, basically Nineveh, and he goes to them with a word. He fights God to get there, but he eventually gets there. And what does he do? He gives a message. And he says, repent. Now, God gives that same message, and Jonah gives the same prophecy right here to Israel, northern Israel. And what do they do? They don't even listen to it. They reject it. You getting it? They reject it. God sends him, Jonah, to Assyria, who eventually is going to ultimately put them in captivity. And maybe this was God's, you know, mercy, right, that this, this timeline that they would repent in some 41 years like this, he sends them to Jonah, and he goes and speaks a word there. And what do they do in, in Assyria? What do they do in Nineveh? They repent. Do you see this? You see how it's all... Many, why did God keep the book of Jonah for us? Why, why did, because of the historical count here, he wants you to understand God's showing us that even when he ministered, when he came to his own people, when he sent the mouthpiece to speak, they, they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear it. He, he, he sent them to a four, he sent a prophet to a four. They received the prophet. And God received their, their, their repentance and, and forgave them. And, and God blessed Nineveh. I just want us to see that. Like we have an actual recorded, historical, accurate account. That if we just humble ourselves, if we just repent as a nation, as a country, God is merciful. He will forgive the United States of America for the atrocities and the sins that we have committed politically, as a government, and individually. He will forgive his people when they turn to him. And I think he's trying to get our attention and has been for a very long time. He's long-suffering. We're going to close with this here. Now, the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he made war, and how to, he recaptured uh, for Israel from Damascus and Hamath, 
what had belonged to Judah. You see that he even writes, brings things back. He, he writes everything. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jeroboam II rested with his fathers, the, king of Israel, the kings of Israel. Then Zechariah, his son, reigns in his place. So we're, we're going we're gonna to stop there this evening. Um, we're going to read about Uzziah. Uh, next, if the Lord should tarry, next Wednesday we're going to come back. We're going to read about, mm, I'd say about halfway, no, not even. We'll get, we'll get probably 12 verses in, and then all of a sudden that timeline's going to pick up. Instead of rains of 20, 30, 40 years, we're going to go to months, six months, two months. It's going to be king, king. The musicians can come forward. Can, we're going to close in worship here. Musicians can come up. They're going to, we're going to go very fast. It's going to really start picking up because as they're getting closer and closer to the time where God's judgments are going to get poured out, it's all going to unravel in the northern tribe. The kings, everything is just going to unravel. Now, dare I give application? Or do you think that we understand the application of what happens when we don't walk according to God's commandments, statutes, and judgments? Many of us have been alive for a number of years. We've been very fortunate and, and blessed in our lives to look back on a very blessed history that we've not only had in this country, but our families, our lives, the safety, the things that we've had that most other nations can't say they have. The liberties, the religious, you know, the ability to to believe what we believe and not, you know, be put in prison for it. We, we've had such a rich history because almost all of our founding fathers in our nation and everything that was built was built on a Judeo-Christian foundation. And God blessed that. He got honored that. He, he did that because we worship. We were worshipers. But I think even the unbelievers today, even the world that doesn't understand or chooses to reject Jesus, even they understand things are all starting to unravel. And they can't even put their finger on it. They can't explain it. But they said it's never been like this before. It's, it's just so fast. It's all coming apart. Evil's being practiced, called good. Even, even evil, people that are wicked are even saying, man, that's evil. Right? That, that's wicked. That's, now that, that takes evil to a whole new place. And that's exactly what we saw right before the judgment came. That's exactly how it, it unfolded. Now, I'm not saying God has to do it that same way again. But I'll tell you what, pay attention. He's coming again. Jesus says he's coming again. And there's a sign and there's a look and there's a feel and there's a, a way he works. He's sending his mouthpiece. He's, the word's going forward. People have choices. But he's coming again. And it's, it's unfolding and it's going to unravel. And as we read next week, you're going to see the pace of it. And it's, I, don't wanna, I think it's going to mirror the pace we see today of just the fabric of a, a string kind of a piece of yarn just unraveling so quickly that it can't be possibly put back together. Let he or she who has an ear hear what the Spirit of the Lord has to say. Will you stand with me? <coughs> Father, we're going to worship you.
in spirit and truth. And we do thank you, God, for your long-suffering, your grace, Lord, your love, your beauty, and the way that you've just poured out so abundantly the blessings in our lives and so many others. God, we do, we come before you as sinners, as broken men and women. God, we want to repent for the sins individually in our hearts. And also, Lord, I pray you would hear that. You, would you receive the forgiveness, Lord, for the sins that, that have gone unanswered, unrepented for in this nation? Jesus, we come and we ask for forgiveness for the wrongdoings. Lord, please, save now. Please, God, continue to send your mouthpiece, Lord, your prophets. Continue to, Lord, anoint your word that you will have a remnant. And Lord Jesus, when you come, may we be found ready, Lord. May we be found ready. And until that time, may we be about, as you were, Jesus, here, our Father's business without distraction. We, we, need, we need your help, Lord, and we want to recommit our lives to you, Lord. Again, in spirit and truth. And Lord, that, that just begins with us as worshipers. So Lord, please, I pray, hear our, our worship, our praise of you, Lord, and just how great you are, Jesus. We pray all and ask all of this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and all God's people pray. Amen. Jesus, draw me close. Closer, Lord, to you. Let the Lord, that's our desire. Receive our worship, and Lord, may we desire obedience as you do over sacrifice.
We pray travel mercies to our homes this evening. And Lord, may we look up because we know our redemption draws nigh. Maranatha, Jesus. Maranatha, brothers and sisters. God bless you. I love you. Jesus, you are everything. In your holy name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.